Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. I just want to ask one quick favor before we jump into this episode. You know, I've been organically growing this podcast for over five years, and I need your help to keep the momentum going. There's two things you can do. One is leaving a five-star rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Spotify is a lot easier. You'll see the rating button right at the top. Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll down the page a little bit, and you'll see a write a review button. Additionally, if you want to share this out with your audience on your social channels, text it to a friend or colleague or family member, whatever you have to do to pass this along to individuals that you find may need the help and may be looking to get started. So either of those things or both of you like would be appreciative so I can get this podcast out to more individuals and we can help more people get started and move in the right direction to a more happy and fulfilling life. So thanks again for your help and grateful to have you here on another episode. Let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Craig Stanland, who is a reinvention architect, TEDx and keynote speaker, and author of Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. He specializes in working with clients who've chased success, money, and status in their first half, only to find a success size hole in their lives. He helps them tap into their full potential and connect with their calling to create their extraordinary second half with purpose, meaning, and fulfillment. So I hope you all enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Craig. And without further ado, please welcome in Craig Stanland. Well, Craig, welcome to the podcast, man. Brian, thank you so much for having me. I've, we just chatted for like five minutes beforehand, and I'm glad that you hit record. Because I think we had some good stuff going. Yeah, and I, you know, I record. I use this Rodecaster, which is kind of cool. Um, so I record locally. I also have the Zoom recording here. So uh, yeah, it's it's nice. And, and I know we were chatting a little about books. I, I didn't think to start this way, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious. Like, you know, as you're thinking, you know, and this is kind of maybe more of a getting started thought of other folks. Like, you know, obviously you've published a book, but as you start thinking about, you know, okay, what's going to be that, you know, that sophomore album, if you will, you know, what's the follow up. Uh, to that book, how do you think about that? You know, and on your journey here, like what topics? I'm I'm assuming you poured a lot into the first book, that was like your baby. How do you kind of go to number two? How do, how do you think about that? What a great question to to start us off. So you're absolutely right. The first book was a memoir. I mean, it was my story, and I poured everything into that. And when I started the second book, I was thinking that I wanted to do something a little more prescriptive that would support my coaching business, that would support my speaking business. And I started going down that avenue and, you know, writing the book that I think others think I should be writing. And that's a key word in there. And it, that should be writing. Didn't feel right. Didn't feel good. And finally, one day, I was listening to the James Alcester podcast, and he actually talked about storytelling and just tell your story because your story is unique. I love writing in the first person. So it was right then and there, you know, James, in a sense, gave me that permission to write the book that I wanted to actually write. So I had about a year plus worth of work creating this thing that I thought I should be writing. And I just started revamping the whole thing. And it really is going to be first person, another memoir type format. And it's what I enjoy doing. And it's the message that I want to convey to an audience, because I think it's a valuable message. Really briefly, it is how I stopped chasing materialism and started creating meaning, and how I found that to be my path to self-acceptance and self-worth and personal freedom. 
Well, and you know, you bring up a good point there, especially going down that path of like, you know, purpose and meaning, but we get caught up so much. I, I know I do. It's funny you mentioned about the the book. I'm actually, I just started reading this, uh, this new book for uh, Craig Ferguson. It's like his memoir. Um, and we'll see if it's good or not. I like kind of the, the first part of it. It's just kind of, you know, from funny stories, but like I read that, I'm like, God, this is, as I, as we were talking about before, you know, I'm starting to write my first, you know, kind of personal development book. And I, I was actually funny reading that last night and I'm like, God, this is written so well. Like, you know, I like, is my book, is anyone actually read it? I had that thought in my head, but going back to your point, it's like, if we believe in something so much, like we just have to put the pen to paper, if you will, and, you know, put out the best work we can. And if people like it, great. If they don't, well, we kind of, you know, we, we go with that too, but hopefully it will impact some folks and we can't get caught up in like, is is it as good as this other person? Because everyone else has different lived experiences. Do you think like that? Like, as you're writing this, do you get caught up in the, oh, I'm not good enough type thing? And do you have to pull yourself back in or? All the time, all the time. Not every day, but pretty close. I feel that imposter syndrome. Uh, and I'll tell you when it hits. When I'm on the keyboard, I'm in the zone. I have a morning routine that puts me into flow. So when I hit the keyboard, I feel very good about the work that I'm doing at that time. But around two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, when I hit my natural lull in the day after lunch, and I just have that, that natural slowing down, all those little voices come in. And I start thinking about what I'm going to write tomorrow. And I start thinking about, it's going to be garbage. Nobody's going to like it. And I come back to one of my favorite stories about imposter syndrome when it comes to writing. John Steinbeck kept a journal while he was writing Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath came out after Of Mice and Men, so he's already a very successful published novelist at this point. And in that journal, he wrote the following line. This book has become a misery to me because of my inadequacy. So here's this massively successful author who opened up in his journal that he was experiencing that imposter syndrome and knowing somebody who I admire like Steinbeck because I love his writing, that he experiences it, it humanizes it. And I think that is when we can connect to something that is humanized in that way, it gives us an avenue out and we know that we're not alone. And, and it's just a question of, I show up every day to write seven days a week, two hours without fail. And I've been doing that for years. And it's just part of my routine. I have to show up every day. And do you care so much about what is written? Is it because this whole thing I didn't learn until recently around like, you know, writing versus editing. I used to always kind of write and then I kind of edit some stuff as I'm going. And now I got to this point of, no, I just write. I don't care what goes down. I'll edit later. Do you take that approach or something different? Or No, absolutely. I get it out. I get it out. And then I don't revisit it for a little bit. I let it sit. I let it marinate. And really when I'm, when I'm towards the end of a book, I will actually let it go for a couple of months. I won't write and I won't look at it. I'll write other things but I won't even look at it because I want that space. I want that distance. So when I do come back to it, I can, you know, as Stephen King said, kill my darlings and I can do the work that needs to be done to, to have the book convey what I want it to convey. What have you learned from writing the first book? What, what that came out, was it last year or the year before? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. That was um, 21, May, 21, May 25th, 21. So what are you doing different this time around? Did anything you learned from that experience that you're, you threw out or maybe you kept that work well? Or You know, the one thing that has 
stood out for me is my writing process is a mess. And I accept that. That's a that's a big part of it is I don't write sequentially. I don't write chapter one, then chapter two, then chapter three. I write what the muse delivers to me in the morning. And then I have to take all of it and put it together like a puzzle piece. So accepting that my process is messy has been really helpful as opposed to saying I should be doing it a other way. I need to do it a different way. Just accepting that my process is that way. The second thing that I learned when I wrote that first book, it's writing about very personal things. And I realized that I was only scratching the surface of those personal things. And it took so many drafts to actually get to the good stuff, to get to the truth. So now what I'm doing is I know, I know when I'm being timid. I know when I'm being bashful behind the keyboard. And I have eliminated that. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm cutting much deeper uh, on that first draft than I was in the, in the first book. You know, I know when I'm lying to myself, I know when I'm hiding behind something. And so that has helped me. What I think is going to happen there is going to shorten the um, amount of drafts that I do. Well, I think if we read in the, the, the best like personal development books that we may read, I don't know if you agree with this or not, maybe based on what you just said, but like they're deep personal stories. They have a lot of depth to them. They're not just kind of surface level. And and that's just, I think, with conversations with people. Like if you have a conversation with someone and they're barely giving you any details, it kind of makes you wonder, like, are they hiding something? But someone that's very open and direct with, hey, this is how it is. And here's the experience I went through and good, bad, and different. You're like, all right, that makes a lot of sense. Like there's truth behind there most likely. Like it's very hard to make up a very deep personal story. I guess some people do, but that's something I think if you read that in a book, you're like, okay, I feel like the character. I feel like I can get in their shoes when I have more information. For me personally, I will, if an author in any kind of personal development book is um, writing almost too prescriptive, where it's just, it feels like a regurgitation of information they've read elsewhere. It's not their personal story. It's not their personal journey. I won't finish it. I want somebody who's been through the mud. I want to know that they went through the mud, they came out, and how did they do it? Because to me, that's instant credibility. Yeah. You know, that is because I went through the mud. You know, I mean, I went through a lot of stuff. <clears throat> and to come out the other side, that's where the value is. So that somebody can, I'm going to, throw a whole monkey wrench into our podcast here. But, you know, I went to prison and I lost everything. People don't know what prison is, but they know what shame is. They know what fear is. They know what guilt is. They know what, you know, embarrassment is. They know how they feel those in their body. And our stories are the vehicle for those emotions. And that's where I personally connect as well. That's what I want is that, that emotion. And I want to connect on that level. And that's what I want to convey to my readers as well. Well, and one thing I wanted to talk about with this conversation, um, you know, you talk about this kind of first half versus second half kind of mentality. And it, I don't, when I was reading that, it made me, it reminded me of the, this Confucius quote, you may know it, is we have two lives, the second begins when we realize we have one. And that kind of got me thinking of like, you know, because I went through something similar, obviously not, you know, in prison or anything, but just kind of. I don't know if the, a lot of self-limiting beliefs, the way I grew up, like thinking life was a certain way. And then it was just a complete 180 over the last, you know, really four to five years. It probably was a little bit longer, um, but I didn't realize it at the time. But can you share a little about your thoughts around this first and second half and maybe how folks can think about getting started on the second half if they don't feel like they're there? 
Absolutely. So I think the the first half, you talked a lot about, you just mentioned like those limiting beliefs. We're handed a set of beliefs from our friends, from our family, from society, what we see now on social media. And we're handed all of those things and we start following them. We follow a blueprint that's not our own. And that really is the first half of our life. And I think that what ends up happening to happen is we reach this point, they reach this culmination where something feels off, something feels missing. And at that point, it's a question of whether or not we're going to do the work to dive deeper into it. Because when we start diving deeper into it, we could discover a lot of painful things. We could discover that the life that we have been living is based on somebody else's blueprint that we're not really comfortable with. And if we are to give that blueprint up, if we're to start a new life, who the heck are we without that? All of a sudden now we have to you know, forge a new identity and it's very, very frightening. But I think to create that second half of life that I believe we all want, um, we, we are intrinsically drawn to purpose and meaning. It's a part of our DNA. And to create that second half with meaning, we do have to start digging into that feeling of what's missing. And that's how we start. That's how we get that ball rolling is, what do I think is missing from my life? You know, what, what, when I do it, do I feel lit up? What adds energy to my life? What subtracts energy from my life? And start really looking at those, those elements. And that's going to start forming this foundation for the second half of life. And then a really great way of doing that is looking at your core values. And what I find so great when I work with uh, my clients one-on-one, oh, do you have core values? Sure, I do. Absolutely. What are they? Well, I don't know. I haven't thought of them. Which always cracks me up because I think that core values should be something that are instantly recitable, that they are a part of you. And when we establish that clarity on those core values, that really helps us set the, the framework for that second half. Well, and the reality is, it's again, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this. I don't believe there's like, it's like first half, second half. It's kind of like first half slowly meanders into second half, right? It's like, it's not like all of a sudden it's a light switch because if we do the work, it's slowly, it's like, ah, wait, this is interesting. And, and you finally come to the epiphany, but at least for me, like with, you know, I, I've been working with my mentor, Rich, and, you know, kind of, he helped me to discover my one word, which is a navigator and to help navigate people to just get started. And, but it, I, I kind of had been doing that for a while, but I didn't realize it. It was kind of this mesh of changing the mindset, as you talked about, understanding my values better. And you start kind of figuring this out and you're like, oh, I've been kind of doing this for like the last few years, but I didn't really, it didn't really click. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's one thing to encourage folks out there listening in is like, you may be already beyond the path. Like how, like, I think the questions you were asking are, are correct. Like, how are you different? How can you think about life and perspective different? Like, what are some different things you could do um, in the way that you, like you mentioned, okay, now I have this morning routine where I write and stuff. Well, you probably didn't always have that. Why was that important to change, right? And it's these slow incremental changes versus just this vast difference one day to the next. I love the fact that you said what you said about it's not a clear delineation between the first half, second half. It is not a light switch. There is a liminal space between the two. And that liminal space is absolutely critical to the second half because let's be honest, you could do nothing and nothing will change. You you set yourself up to live a life of regret. And it's that liminal space 
is an opportunity to start asking those questions, to start doing that deep dive. And some people will stop when it gets a little bit too hard, but the people who continue, you know, to your point, to get started and then keep that momentum going, those are the people that are able to create that meaningful second half. Well, and you talked about the elimination. This is something I've been keen on for a while is how do I, it's not always adding, it's how do I take away some of the, the, the poor habits or the, the negative self-talk is really, we were talking about that earlier with like, hey, I'm reading this book and I'm like, gosh, this is really written well. Am I going to write this? You know, like taking away those thoughts more and more of like, hold on, Brian, you have to believe in what you, you know, what you've been doing or what you're trying to do versus I used to kick myself. Oh my gosh. Like literally it was every day just kicking myself. I wasn't good enough. Did you go through that a lot? Like when you were younger, like just the, I, cause I know you, one of the, one of the things that, and your TEDx talk, by the way, was great. Um, is that story of like always, you know, faint, you know, going for the money and the fame and the, you know, all of that and the status, I'm assuming it was a, I'm never good enough. I need more type mentality, you know, pre-prison. Would that be an accurate statement? That nails it on the head. Absolutely. Hands down was, those limiting beliefs from childhood, those things that were established in childhood. And I'll give a specific example of what it was. Well, I would bring home, let's say, a 97 on a test. Mm -hmm. Good score, right? 97, great score. Yeah. My father would take that and he would look at the test, find the question or questions that I got wrong and say that, you know, you made a careless mistake. You made a stupid mistake. A hundred was expected. A 97 was not good enough. Now, seven, eight, nine, 10 year old brain, a 97 isn't good enough that I put a lot of work into busted my butt to get that right. 97. Right. So it's not good enough. What does that start transferring into? Well, my best isn't good enough. Right. Then that becomes, I'm just not good enough. Right. And that's, that was something to this day still pops up, which I think is really interesting when we do this work that we're talking about here, when we're constantly pushing the boundaries of what we think we're capable of, we're going to find our limits. We're going to find those childhood limits and they pop up. So when I start landing a bunch of keynotes and things are really going well, that voice is going to pop up. It's yeah. still going to come up and I still, still struggle with it. It's now having the tools and the mechanism and the awareness to recognize when it does. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember, um, working with a sports psychologist, you know, I played golf and I tried to play at a higher level. I was never that good of a player, but you know, I was trying to, and I remember working with a sports psychologist, uh, in college and he's like, Brian, I, you really, you have a fear of success. It's almost like you get to a point where you don't feel you're good enough. And it not, not that I self-sabotage, but it's, I mean, I guess that's the simplest way to say it is kind of how he, like you almost miss a shot because your brain doesn't think that you're good enough to accomplish this, or you get too nervous, your body tightens up. And it's something that it's taken me a long time. I haven't overcome it fully, but I even think about this, like, um, I don't know if you have kids, but like I have a, a 10 year old and I think about this, like, as I'm trying to talk with him and communicate those self-limiting beliefs that I had similar with, you know, I think it was just a generation of parents of like, it, always looking for the negative, not not that they didn't give positive reinforcement sometimes, but it was a lot of the negative reinforcement. You know, what could you have done better versus, hey, you did a great job here and I like where you, you know, did there. So I try to think about that even with my son of like trying to give him more of the positive reinforcement and not go back into the negative, which is like that that old brain, you know, that I was conditioned with as a child. 
isn't it? It's just crazy how that just, you know, pops up at the, the wrong time. It completely pops up at the wrong time. And I think what's interesting about that is when it pops up to be able to have, like I said, that awareness to see it, because for me now it means that I'm going in the right direction. You know, it's no yeah. longer always a hindrance. It's actually, oh, okay, I'm doing some, I'm doing some good things here. I'm actually going in the direction I want to go because the more of those fears, the more the imposter syndrome and that feeling of not enough comes up, it's triggering things. Yeah. And those triggers mean that I'm doing something good. Doesn't mean that I'm always immediately um, dancing for joy that they're coming up. You know, sometimes they knock me on my butt and it takes a little bit to, to get myself back up. But it's, it's knowing that they don't have to limit me anymore. Yeah. That's well, what's important. And, and I think the, the big thing around this is awareness. You know, your self-awareness all the time. But to your point, it's like being aware of where you've come from. Like being aware to turn around and look down the mountain and say, wow, where did I? I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I can't remember the exact conversation. It seems like I have this all the time though. Like, you know, I, I've been doing CrossFit for like five and a half years and it's been really important to me and kind of getting my you know fitness and health in order and stuff. But someone mentioned something to me. I can't remember what move you're we doing. And I kind of made the old, you know, like kind of not good enough. Like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do as well as I wanted. And then I remember I'm like, dude, you're lift, lifting like a hundred pounds more than you ever did in this particular move. Like let's, you know, pause for a second and realize all the work you've done. But it goes back to that's that's improvement. That is forward progress because you actually have awareness where you were. Not that doesn't mean you're not going to kick yourself from time to time, but you can get back up a lot quicker from it. Like that's what I take of it is like I can get back up a lot quicker and I can stop myself from going down the negative path that I normally would just go down and dwell in for maybe hours or days or what have you in the past. That's something so critical is when those voices come up is shortening the gap between yeah. uh, the voice coming up and going down the potential spiral is, yeah. you know, shortening that gap and how long for me, I live in that space. You know, it's, it's, it's okay if it occurs because I can't block out all those thoughts and that's practicing that acceptance and seeing those voices coming up and say, you know, very, um, what is it? And Buddhist, uh, I see you Mara. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that, I'm but not, it's no. uh Oh, so uh, Buddha, I hope nobody is listening to this and they're going to be like, wow, he got this so wrong. But really high level overview, in a sense, Buddha's nemesis was Mara. And when Buddha would start having some of those negative thoughts, mm -hmm. he would say, I see you, Mara. Mm -hmm. And that was his acknowledgement of that and that acceptance of that. Mm -hmm. And so to practice that acceptance and shorten the amount of space that I live in that negativity, Yeah, you know, cause I think it's very hard to, like we said, it's very hard to eliminate it entirely, but if we can shorten the space and reframe it, like I said earlier, to understand that it's a, it's a beacon saying that I'm going in the right direction. You know, that's where we, that's where we can make those improvements. That's where we can change. What did you do specifically like anything, you know, whether it was journaling or meditation or, you know, talking with someone like anything specific that helped you change to become more aware to become more, you know, kind of recognizing these old beliefs and trying to change them in a, in a better direction. You nailed two of them. So I know there's actually three. It was journaling, meditation, and a gratitude practice. Those were three practices that I started in prison that I still do to this day. They were that important to me. 
the meditation allowed me to go within. It allowed me to witness and be an observer of all those crazy thoughts. Journaling allowed me to get them on paper. Gratitude allowed me to see, you know, here I am in prison having self, I, I self-sabotaged. I mean, that was self-sabotage on the grandest fashion that I landed in prison. I sacrificed so much for so little and I was financially ruined. I was divorced. I had suicide ideation, all of these things. And yet I could still find something to be grateful for, whether it was the prison I was in. This sounds so silly. We had the most gorgeous sunrises and sunsets you've ever seen. We we're on top of a mountain. And because it's prison, you know, there's no, there's a, the wood line was very far away from everything. So it was wide open. And these sunrises were, they were spectacular. So in the midst of all of this inner turmoil, I can still be grateful for that. And so that is that abundance mindset. That is, it allows me to embrace impermanence. It, it cultivates courage. So those three things really combined gave me that, that those were my tools for that self-awareness. How did you journal specifically? Was it just kind of data dump of information from their brain or did you like have a certain you know kind of style that you wrote in data dump stream of conscious just let it all fly i will actually and i still do this to this day uh if i have a an uh a but or a so or filler words or literally go hmm in my brain i will write hmm <laughs> i will write h and okay. five m's you know and i just that's how stream of conscious it is I do not have any structure to it. I just want to let whatever is inside out. And for me, my handwriting is terrible, so I couldn't go back and reread what I write anyway, but I wouldn't. Mm. My exercise, I know some people like going back and rereading things, and I think there is a lot of value in that. But my purpose is to get it out and leave it on the page. Mm. That's where it is. If I do write something that's, I believe, very valuable, I will fix my handwriting, I will slow it down, and I will write it legibly, and I'll put a star next to it. And then I keep track of that um, online, I put it into a note taking system. Mm. So I can go back and see some of those, what I think are more salient points that I want to revisit in my life. Mm. But other than that, I leave it all, I just dump it out. Is there anything else you're maybe you're exploring now, or maybe helping, you know, folks that you work with in terms of how they because hey, this is something that comes up a lot is, hey, I don't know my purpose. I don't know how to get my purpose. Like, what can I do to start exploring that further? What's your answer to that? That is, <clears throat> in a sense, it's a pet peeve of mine. And I, I help people connect with their purpose. But the amount of content that exists out there that we need to find our purpose, we're living life wrong if we don't find our purpose, it puts too much pressure on it. And what I like to suggest to my clients, to friends, to anybody, is to start living purposefully live on purpose. Mm. So that to me is, we all can so easily fall into autopilot, right? So stop before you brush your teeth, before you get in the shower, before you do anything. Stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Start becoming intentional about actions. When you're driving to work and you take the same way all the time, take a different way. Become intentional about your actions and live life on purpose. Tie that to what we were talking about earlier, what lights me up, what takes away energy. So when you start looking at those things and the things that light you up, 
start being intentional about taking action on that. You know, if you know that walking in the woods, for example, really recharges you, put it in the calendar, make it real, and just start doing that. What ends up happening to me, purpose is not something that we can chase. It's not something that's handed to us on a silver platter. It's something that's cultivated. And I believe when we start living on purpose, that's how we cultivate it. We start getting clear on what lights us up and we can start taking more direction on that and, and introducing ourselves to awe, wonder, and novelty because that's also going to start triggering other things in our brain that will all of a sudden say, oh, I like doing this. I like doing that. If I combine the two or I combine three, yeah. then you're onto something. Yeah, you make a great point there. And, and I even like to, because I've done this, so I, I would encourage folks to like look back at, going back to childhood again, but like what were, the, what were your fondest memories? What were your happiest memories or the memories when you felt the best? And as you start looking at those, like, like what I found was, I enjoyed like the conversations I used to have my grandmother around her table. Like um, I enjoyed like uh, talking with friends at school, like, you know, random folks would like come, I don't know why, like they would like say, Hey Brian, can you help me with this or whatever? And I'd be like at the lunch table, like you know, having these conversations with kids where I'm like, all right, you know, I wasn't that much popular a kid, but for some reason they, maybe there was a comfort. So I started to notice that. And when I look back, I'm like, ah, that's probably why I enjoy coaching folks. I enjoy the podcasting. I, these are things that I really enjoy doing. I just like connecting and I'm curious and, and, but it wasn't until I went back and thought about that where I was like, oh, I should lean in more to things like that. And let's see if I like them, you know? So it's kind of like opening and exposing myself to might be very odd or, or unique things I never thought of, but it ties back to your point of things that made me happy, things that encouraged that I was encouraged as a kid to do. Now I can do them as an adult in a different way. How interesting. Odd and unique were two words I used for yeah. some of those childhood things, right? So we maybe liked doing those odd and unique things. I liked cars. I loved, and I still do to this day, yeah. but you know, I draw them. I would uh, design engines and all of these things. And I was told that that wasn't really the way to go. It was a little bit more odd. It was a little more unique. And so we start following that blueprint yeah. that, you know, you're supposed to get a different office job or, you know, this, you know, you go to this school, you get that office job, you, you move to the suburbs, all that stuff. And we have to revisit that childhood and look at those odd and unique things because that's also, you know, that's our uniqueness. We weren't, you know, what is it? There's a one in 400 trillion chance of each of us being born. Some mathematicians say one in 400 quadrillion. You know, we weren't designed to look at a spreadsheet all day. So when we go back, I love that you said that, to go back to childhood and look at some of those weird things that we used to do. That's our uniqueness. Yeah. And yeah. that's where we can really shine. It's a simple pleasures too. You know, it's not some, oh, I won the, you know, championship game. Like, okay, those were good moments. But like, what were the simple moments in life where you felt like you were? And again, I think it comes back to like, you know, those qualities. It goes back to those values that are important to us. Like, did we feel supported? Did we, did we have the warm and fuzzies? Like, did, like those type of things I think are really important to layer into. And that's where journaling comes in. The more that you journal and put it out in paper, you start re, um, uh, reconnecting on those ideas. I don't know what word I'm thinking of using there. Uh, we start bringing, regurgitating those ideas, I don't know, um, back from childhood and back from earlier days that we can now turn into different. Now, obviously, podcasting wasn't available when I was a kid, 
but going into like, okay, there's some things that, you know, it's so funny. I'll share this story. Like I had, uh, this popped my head, but I've talked about in the past. I had this teacher in, uh, uh, Mr. Hines in public speaking. And he was, he pulled me aside one day randomly. And uh, as I was leaving class, he's like, Brian, you got great pitch and tone. You should be on radio someday. And this is 2000. Uh, or 2000, I guess 2000, 2001, somewhere in that time frame, right? Senior year of high school. And, but that never left me. And I had, I used to have ton of folks like, Brian, Brian, you got a great radio voice and all this stuff. Never really thought about it. Cause again, no confidence or anything. So as I started with podcasting, all these things kind of met in the middle, like, again, love talking with people and curious, oh, you got a radio voice and Hey, I, I enjoyed listening to podcasts and they kind of all came together. And that's one of the reasons, one of the big reasons I started the podcast is I was like, okay, maybe this is a, an avenue where I can share a lot of stories and have folks like yourself on to share your stories, you know? So it's kind of funny how never would have thought about that, but a lot of those kind of met in the middle and why I still do the podcast today. I love it. It's, it's something that lights me up. First off, you do have a fantastic voice. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. It's absolutely it's brilliant. Uh, but to, you know, to our point, what we're, we're talking about is some of those things from childhood and how do they translate into today? I think that we, when we start looking into those childhood passions that we liked doing, we have to be very open-minded because they may not fit into a box that exists today. Like podcasting didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got to, that's where that, that novelty and awe and wonder comes in. That's where we open up our brains to different ways of thinking so that we can be open. We really, you know, I, I believe that we're conditioned to have blinders on. And the more that we start widening those blinders, we can see more opportunities and possibilities. And one of the key ways that we do that is um, doing things that scare us. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, well, and th this goes back to, again, we've talked about this kind of theme of the uh, the episode, but being able to look outside of what the what you would consider normal and give your again lean into some of those things like oh this is unique i never really thought about that but hey i like again whatever let me go down this path this might be something that lines with something that i like to do although it's something i never even thought of doing and that's the same with sitting in a chair and you know meditating or thinking about our life it's like Never would have thought of doing that, but why don't I try it? Let's just see if it exposes some thoughts or see if it, you know, pulls out some things that might be uncomfortable, but gosh, it moves me in a different direction. We can't just stay at, you know, status quo. I mean, we can, I guess, but we're, we're not going to move forward anywhere if we do. We, we can absolutely stay status quo. And I believe that's a guarantee to die with regrets, hands down. I mean, that's just, if we stay at that status quo, we are guaranteed to, of regrets. I wish I did. I wish I could have. And, you know, taking those things that, like you said, meditation, giving it a fair shot as well. That's important. You know, you try something once or twice and you're like, I don't like it. Got to give it, you know, I know there's different numbers out there about habits and, you know, having it stick. It's not about necessarily creating a new habit, but diving into something and giving it a substantial amount of your time and effort being very intentional about it, not just once, twice, or three times, but playing in a world, you know, maybe it's cars or dinosaurs you liked as a kid, giving yourself three weeks, a month to dive into a subject, to go deep on it, and go down different avenues to see what comes up, to see what bubbles to the surface. And journaling on that is really important because you might be say, you know, I don't like that aspect of this subject, but I really like this aspect. Okay, why do you like it? 
Why is that important to you? What does that remind you from childhood? Yeah. What about it can you expand upon? What would you do differently? Yeah, that's a you great know, all point. of those things. Yeah. Well, and what I like you... I like that for journaling. You know, like and I changed the way cuz I used to always journal kind of like you did, like just kind of spout out whatever came to my mind and whatever. And then I kind of changed it and I came up with my own kind of four questions that I ask. And I encourage this other folks were, you know, going to have a conversation about journaling. They're like, ah, I don't really like the journal. Well, why? Well, I just, it's whatever. It's, you know, again, you have a myriad of excuses, but I, the same advice you just gave, I kind of said, try it a different way. Do, do something different. Like just write one question out or just write us, you know, try to write a paragraph or it doesn't matter. But just because you didn't like it before, doesn't mean A, you won't like it now if you try it a different way. And B, doesn't mean you have to always like it. The goal is not necessarily to like it. The goal is to pull something out to try to make your life better. And sometimes the things we don't like are really uncomfortable, you know? So maybe the reason you don't like it is because it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's not that you don't like it because you don't like writing. No, you don't want to know the thoughts that you're going to put on paper. You know, that's the real truth. I think that the journaling is such a great example that can kick up so many of those limiting beliefs. Um, a big one that I find with my clients is, Oh, I don't know what to write. Um, I don't, my spelling is no good. I'm not a writer. Mm -hmm. All of these things, those have nothing to do with journaling. Yeah. They have nothing to do with journaling. It's just getting it out. And I'll go back to um, a Hemingway piece of advice. You know, you, if you're stuck on what to write, write one true sentence. That's how you start with journaling. Just write one true sentence. I'm sad today. I'm happy today. You know, it could be very simple. And then something to follow it up with. And this is, I'm going to circle back to gratitude. This is actually a fun little thing I do with gratitude. Um, ask why. So, you know, let's say the first sentence is, I'm sad today. Why? And you can kind of go down that road, see where it takes you. But also with gratitude, I'm grateful for this morning's sunrise. Why am I grateful for this morning's sunrise? That opens up such a wide avenue of things. Well, I'm alive to see it. Yeah. I'm in a place, I may be in prison, but I'm in a place that has these gorgeous sunrises and sunsets and I'm awake early enough to see it. You know, it's, it's a beautiful day. The sky is clear so I can see it. It just opens up such an avenue. Yeah. Just asking why. I love it. Cause that's actually the first question. I, I say, what are you grateful for today? And then why I have to make myself put a why to it because if I, cause I'd done gratitude journals before and I put like the same five or 10 things. I'm like, this is not really beneficial. So I figured, okay, let's just pick one. You got to get really super specific today. Think of, and it, what, you know, what's interesting, it allows you to think about the day. You're not just spouting off to get through it. It's like, okay, I only can pick one thing. What am I grateful for? So what happened today maybe that I'm grateful for? And then again, to your thing, why? Because I think it just gives more depth. It makes you have to think about the gratitude a little bit more, you know? Oh, it, it opens up so many things. Um, I'm grateful I went to the beach today. I'm, I'm five minutes from the beach, right? but I and you know, I'm grateful I went to the beach. Why? Uh, because I live in a place that I'm five minutes away. I can afford to live near the beach. I am with somebody who is amazing that we, she loves going to the beach. You know, all of a sudden, it's just this extraordinary thing. You start looking at the life that we've created together. All of a sudden, you've got a page that comes from one sentence. And it's a really deep dive into that one thing. So why is unbelievably powerful. And same with journaling. And, and I would also, with journaling, um, be an annoying five-year-old and just keep asking why over and over again. Yeah. So you get to the, so you get to the thing behind the thing, you get to the core, you get to the crux of the matter. If you were to look back and this maybe is, you know, kind of 
helpful advice you can share with someone that's getting started or, or thinking about. But like, I'm sure I'm curious if you go back to the, uh, you know, what, maybe 10 years ago, you were, you know, I don't think you were in prison 10 years ago, right? That was pre prison. That was pre prison. Yes. So let's go back to 2013. And kind of looking at that Craig at that time, you know, what advice would you give to them? Maybe like, hey, you're going to go on this journey. What are maybe some things you learned from that? Maybe advice you would give. You can kind of take any direction you want, but someone that hasn't gotten started yet and is about to or wants to, but they're just like, I don't really know what to do. What would be the first step for them? Make a list of it from me. What I would say to uh, pre-prison Craig would be make a list of your fears and deliberately and intentionally blast through every single one of them. Because um, pre, pre-prison Craig lived a life of fear. You know, fear was a major ingredient in the cocktail that landed me in prison. So it would just be face those fears and expand your world. That would be first and foremost to me because I think that part of my journaling, and this is actually in my book, I see fear as a door on our path, but it's kind of wonky looking. It looks like a Salvador Dali painting. So it's just a door in the middle of nowhere. There's no, there's no frame around it or anything. You can walk around it. You don't have to go through, you walk up to it. Um, there's nothing that says we have to walk through the door of fear. But I know when I don't, I diminish my world. I shrink my world. And the more that I capitulate to that fear, the more I shrink my world. And it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it becomes harder and harder to break through that. But if I choose to grab that doorknob and walk through, it's a whole new world on the other side. Yes, it may look exactly the same as the world I was just in but it's an entirely new world and it increases the amount of opportunities and possibilities that I have. And I think that is just for me, my journey from prison to where I am now has just been to the best of my ability. I don't always do it. There are some things on my list that I haven't, uh, that scare the heck out of me that I haven't done, Mm -hmm. but it's been just going through those fears. You know, public speaking was my number one fear to do that TED talk was the ultimate representation of conquering that fear. Nice. It took five years, but it was the, one of the greatest journeys I've ever done. How long did you take to prepare for that once you got the nod to, to do it? So I started preparing. So I, I was practicing in this like loose format. And then finally, I said, I want to nail this thing. I want 3 million views. What is somebody who gets 3 million views? What do they do? How do they show up? They have a practice schedule and they commit to it. So I said, for the next 31 days, I'm going to practice three times a day. And so I'd already probably put like 10 or 15 in. So I had about 110, let's say 115 run-throughs on that talk. The point was I wanted to, I didn't want it to be memorized. I wanted to be so ingrained in me that it just poured out of me, that I was just a, a vessel that it came out. So that was, it was important for me too. This is, if you don't mind, I want to be conscious of our time. This is actually an interesting story of like, you know, facing those fears and doing, building self-trust because it's so important. So I was about 15 days into that 30-day commitment and I'm sitting on the couch. I had um, come home from my job at the gym, which I got after prison. You know, it was late. I go to bed at 10 o'clock every single night and it's about 9.50 and I realize it's time for bed, but I've only done two practices for the day. And I say to myself, doesn't matter, whatever, I'm tired. 
It's going to take me 20 minutes to do my practice. I want to go to bed at 10. I can't do it. It doesn't matter. And that didn't land with me well when I said it didn't matter. I got up and I did that practice. That was when everything changed for me. That's when the tumblers fell into place. That's when the, the talk actually took real form. That's when it became a part of me. And I kept that commitment to myself. And it was one of the most important days of my life because after that, I realized I was the guy talking about not feeling enough, not feeling worthy. I was the guy who did what he said he was going to do. I knew I could rely on myself. And that really fills that gap of not feeling you know, like you're enough. So that was, that was wow. part of my practice. Well, and I think it hits the, the point home that you have a choice. You could have went to bed. You made the choice not to. And then you made the choice the next day and the next day. So we all have that choice each day, those, those micro decisions that we make. And it's not always just, okay, go to bed or do something else. You know, obviously there's, you know, some people have bigger decisions to make, but for the most part, it's like, do I go to the gym or not? Do I eat this healthy food or not? Right. Do I, do I write for an hour a day or 10 minutes a day or whatever it is, right? Whatever you're trying to accomplish. It's just a, it's just a decision. It's a choice. You know, it's just a decision. And to look at our choices and to, to ask, is this going to um, diminish me or expand me? Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think the, the more, we're not all going to do the things that expand us all the time. I think that's, I think that's impossible. But as long as we're hedging on the side of more expansion than dis diminishment, we're in a good place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good place to uh, to stop here. I mean, this is this is a fun conversation, Craig. Um, I, this is I so much fun. Yeah, a lot of good uh, back and forth here, which is always nice. And hopefully uh, some folks got some good value out of it. Where can everyone say hello to you? What watering holes are you uh, playing around with online? Any, anything you'd share to, to end the uh, conversation? Absolutely. So it's craigstanlin.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn every single day. You can check out my book, Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. It's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And one thing that I would like to leave the audience with, thinking of that first and second half conversation that we've, that we've had, a reminder our past cannot define us without our consent. Hmm. Well, think about that one. That's, I like that. The past cannot define us without our consent. Let's leave it's, it there. It's some, yeah, let's leave it there. That's really good. I like that. Um, and, and, you know, it's one of those things, too. I think we, you know, the whole Seneca quote I love, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. But it kind of goes the other way, as you're saying, like those things have already happened. It's are we letting them control us? Are we letting them impact us for our future decisions? Or are we using that as knowledge, you know, to help us become better? That's at least what I'm thinking out of on the fly. And that's that was my intention for it. And it's also one of those statements that whatever anybody takes out of it is accurate. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, cool, Craig. This was a lot of fun, man. I'm uh, glad to have the conversation and the connection with you and uh, look forward to uh, keeping in touch. Brian, thank you so much for the opportunity. This was an absolute blast. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, 
I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.